The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets and policy. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This is an incredibly strong character who's going to be able to carry a film. And the fact that communicating the main thing that one needs to do in a documentary, after all, is a struggle for Gabby, could actually be a strength for us because showing our viewers how she does that is going to be part of our story. That was kind of our our pitch, and um, they bought it. Oscar-nominated filmmaker Julie Cohen on her latest with Betsy West, Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down, a gripping documentary that tells the story of the Arizona Congresswoman's long comeback from the 2011 attempt on her life. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link FullDRadio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to my listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station across the great Commonwealth. DM me, please, to carry full disclosure on your air. Joining me is Julie Cohen, one of the directors of Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down. It's the story of uh, former U.S. Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords' unbelievable comeback following the assassination attempt on her in 2011. Uh, Julie's also Oscar-nominated alongside her sidekick, her battery mate, Betsy West, for RGB, the story of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. How are you again, Julie? Uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you, Robin. I'm not going to lie. This was a really tough one to watch, but I guess as she was taken down and built up, you you build the viewer up with her. I mean, she's taken down just this beautiful empath, this natural campaigner, someone who was destined for great things to go from this congressional seat outside of Tucson, probably to the U.S. Senate, and I think beyond. And so much of that was cut short in 2011. And I just want to know how you found and secured this story. I want to know the backstory. Right. Well, I just, you know, and I, I, I agree with your characterization. Yes, there are tough parts, but, you know, there's no question that Gabby's journey, what happened to Gabby in 2011 was, was tragic and the fight back from it has been really tough. But what's so amazing about her is how much life and joy and humor and romance is in her story. And that's kind oh, yeah. of what made us want to tell it. Um, this story came to us actually from uh, someone who ended up being the producer of the film, Lisa Ersbommer, who had been working and talking with Gabby for several years, going back to when Lisa was an Oprah uh, Winfrey producer and had thought that um, the story could make a, an amazing documentary and in uh, early 2020 reached out to us and said, hey, would you be interested in having a conversation, you know, having a Zoom with Gabby Giffords and Mark Kelly? And we were like, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, we got on a Zoom. We were a little nervous. You know, we, we knew yeah. a lot, but both of us remembered Gabby from the assassination attempt and we knew that she you know, had her name on a major organization, like fighting for some reform in our gun laws called Giffords. But we didn't really know that much about like, okay, what kind of shape is she in? And is this someone we can really talk to? And could you make a subject of a documentary of someone who's been so severely injured? And, you know, meeting Gabby over Zoom just allayed all those concerns. You know, in the doc, it takes me back to this, this terrifying 30 minutes where Mark Kelly, her husband's now U.S. Yeah. senator from Arizona, thought she had died because they had reported that largely on the news in the haze of this mass shooting outside of Tucson. Um, but she survived, barely. Yes. You know, it's kind of a reminder. I mean, as we've had more and more of these mass shootings in this country, I think maybe the journalists have learned to be a little bit more cautious because Gabby was shot directly in the head 
at close range, you know, falls down bleeding. Others on the scene, understandably, just assumed her to be dead. So there was, you know, pe- people were calling into their bureaus. I mean, you know, having having talked to, you know, people rushed to the scene afterward. Journalists rushed to the scene afterwards, and were hearing from people. You know, Gabby Giffords was a huge local celebrity as at this mm. point a new, newly reelected uh, third term congresswoman. Like everyone yeah. knew who she was. She was a superstar. She was a rising star locally. So. Although there had been six people killed and uh, 12 others aside from uh, Gabby injured, people were thinking of this as the Gabby Giffords, you know, as a Gabby Giffords event. So people were telling like, oh, you know, I think Gabby has died. And that just, you know, left a misimpression. And uh, poor Mark Kelly, who was rushing to Tucson from Houston, where he was in training as a NASA astronaut, um, to see his his wife they'd only been married for three years at that point so right. these are like you know newlyweds a lovely romantic story and he's on the plane watching a television report and hears um you know hears reporters on multiple channels and and anchor people saying that his wife has has died obviously just a complete wrenching situation you think you're flying to go to the hospital you hear your wife has died He's trying to process that. They leave the news on because they're waiting for sort of more confirmation or just to see what people are are, are saying right. about her when there's literally a reporter at the hospital saying like, no, I'm here at the hospital. She's here. She's in surgery. I'm, I have it from the doctors. Like she's actually has not died. So he continues his journey, you know, rushes to the hospital room where um, at that point she was in quite a, a, a long surgery to remove a fairly substantial portion of her skull, which they have to do after that uh, that severity of a brain injury to prevent the brain swelling from causing more uh, more damage within the you know hard encasing of your of your skull. Um, and when she came out of surgery, the doctors, the neurosurgeons, said to Mark, "Like, well, we think she can survive, but we have no idea what her life is now going to be. We don't know if she's going to." You know, we have her in a medically induced coma, as you do at that level of seriously. We don't know whether she's going to be cogent. We don't know if she's going to be able to walk. We don't know if she's going to be able to talk. Like, we, we just and, really and can't say anything. much of the movie starts with footage of that frailty. She is almost child. And it's almost like, a, I, I, you know, for lack of another description, like a, a newborn coming into the world and learning things all over again and absolutely lost and uh, so frail and has to wear this helmet. And there are points where she can't lock eyes with the therapist or she cries or she breaks down. And you realize how very touch and go it was. Absolutely. Um, You know, really, the amazing good fortune for us as filmmakers was that Mark Kelly, not yet then a senator, obviously, at the time, astronaut Kelly had as a as a sort of like scientific, like data kind of guy, like someone who has a tragedy in his life and kind of responds in a rational, like, okay, what can I do here? What would be the best, you know, use of my time? Decides like, oh, I should go buy a video camera and set it up in her hospital room and start recording her therapy because, you know, as she improves and he's an optimistic guy, as his wife is also very optimistic. And he was just like, she's going to, she's going to get better. And as she gets better, she's going to want to see what she went through. So, I think I should be like running a camera, you know, not 24 seven, but, you know, for a couple hours every day through the most intense. And how prescient, how prescient that was, because on the one hand, it's kind of clinical and empirical and a little sterile. And you're wondering, you, you almost feel you feel wrong watching some of this, but not to give any spoiler away the way she reconstitutes with the rest of the movie. And she goes back and looks back at this footage. It's a tremendous message of hope. It's a tremendous message of the human brain can reclaim. Even if you can't get your speech back in full, you can get your voice back in full, as it was said in the movie. And there are other parts of the brain, such as you know her attachment to 80s music and when yes. she rides her bike and aha and, and you too and other things. It's, it's so instructive in so many ways. Yeah. You know, we were we were a little concerned and and the reason that we wanted to make sure that we got some footage of her watching the old footage of her early recovery days is this is hard to explain to someone who hasn't seen the movie yet and we hope everyone does go and see the movie but um there's a lot of parts of her early rehabilitation even when she's quite impaired that are really funny like 
And we understood that the, you know, she ha- has a, a problem that's fairly common with different language impairments uh, called perseveration, perseveration, where, you, where yeah. you get stuck on a word and you can't stop saying it. And is Ga- in Gabby's case, the word was chicken. And no matter what happened, you know, they're trying to get her to say all different kinds of words. And she just says chicken. And as chicken, wa- chicken was chicken. hilarious in hindsight when she went back and looked back. Exactly. At it. And as we're watching this, we're like, okay, this is great. And audience yeah. is going to laugh out loud because we laughed out loud seeing it. And we kind of felt like we need to at some point let people know that it was okay to laugh, which yeah. is, you know, and like, and Gabby watching it and like she's laughing. And as, um, you know, her first reaction, in fact, to seeing herself say chicken is to laugh. And, and her husband says to her, like, well, it wasn't funny at the time. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. And in fact, in fact, the therapist had to keep it together. The therapist said, I wanted to cry with her. Yeah. And she's saying, you're going to get past this. It's going to get better. And the therapist also felt reconstituted walking up the steps to see her. Again, I don't want to give too much away. You have to see the movie, which which drops in theaters this week. Gabby, Gabby Giffords won't back down. We're talking to director Julie Cohen. She's Oscar nominated for our BG, the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late Supreme Court justice. We've had you on the show for that as well. I have to ask you with this in this case, you know, you 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 also in the doc kind of harp on the word representative and what it should mean. Yeah. And yes, it should mean going out there and being buttonholed by constituents, leaving this kind of old timey robocall message and saying, look, I'll be out in the parking lot of the Safeway, come and see me. And yet, this is such a case study in how impossible that is if there is a a a schizophrenic constituent or someone who's hearing voices who could buy a gun at a walmart and and mow down six or seven people and that broke my heart yes right i mean it's a real it's a real sad sign of our times that you know (laughs) gabby's best quality as a politician in the end is what endangered her just really wanting to meet and connect and interact with her constituents um and not setting up a lot of barriers to who could show up at an event like this or just, you know, really, really wanting to be uh, among the people that that she represented. We live in a dangerous world. Um, it does not appear to be getting much less dangerous. And um, I think what's so lovely about, you know, former Congresswoman Giffords is that she hasn't you know, she's not a running scared kind of person. Like she's got all kinds of amazing qualities. And one of them is just like a fearlessness. You would, you would think the trauma of being shot might change that, but, um, but it really didn't like, she wants to go out riding her recumbent bike, uh, on the streets of Tucson every single day. She's out there, uh, I mean, again, spoiler alert, but you'll see her skydiving in the film. Yeah, like, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go skydiving, you know, w- without like uh, these uh, the additional challenges that that it presents for Gabby. But she's just, I mean, we had a situation uh, recently. Um, myself and and Betsy, my directing partner, and Gabby were like walking out onto the stage of the Time One Hundred Summit, which is sort of this big conference. And yeah. I do a lot of public speaking. Usually, it's fine, but this one kind of felt like it was like in this darkened auditorium, and there were spotlights on us, and like a big announcer was being like, "Oh, coming to the stage." And as we're walking out backstage, I said to her, "Like, hmm, you know." I felt this is kind of big. I feel I feel kind of nervous. Like Gabby, do you ever get nervous? And she said, "Not really." <laughs> um, so, like, she just doesn't she just doesn't approach the world with fear, and she doesn't approach the world assuming the worst in people. Another thing that you might expect could be a painful, you know, result of of the experiences that she's had, but she just doesn't let this incredibly painful, it wasn't just a day because it's been her life ever since has been the long, hard process of recovering, but she doesn't let that ruin her. She, she, she's come up with a way to take the best, like the best from the worst. And like that, that's, you know, she's just a remarkable, amazing, uh, lovable, feisty, tough human being. Julie, do you think she was destined to kind of glide path to the U.S. Senate? After all, Mark Kelly said that they were indeed preparing uh, around the shooting to have the conversation about her running for the U.S. Senate, if not filing the papers. And I always remember her being bandied about. She had such natural campaigning skills and the the centrism and the things that she could discuss in terms of border control and and, um, being pro-choice and whatnot that that made her very valuable, I think, in the eyes of the Obama administration. 
in terms of kind of a bullpen for future presidential talent? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, I think that the sort of proof of that is how strongly uh, President Obama uh, believes that to be the case. Um, we had actually tried to interview uh, the former president for a couple documentaries we've made. He has turned us down in the past. When we came to him with the request to do an interview about Gabby Giffords, he said yes immediately. He feels, you know, out of, like, I think just a deep connection to her, both as a human being, as a rising political star who was rising just around the same time he That's was, right. after That's all. Right. Uh, so he was very much aware of her. And also as a symbol of the frustration of the fight regarding gun violence. So like, she really means a lot to him. And I think he, I think back in the, she was elected for the first time in 2006. To, to the house so she and he were really rising together and there was you know there's there's always talk within a party of like who are our future stars even before they've really made it onto the national radar i mean of course obama came onto the national radar in 2004 with his Four, like sort right. of knock it out of the park uh speech at the democratic national convention. convention but like this is a period these are people coming you know from local politics into being you know being in in the house or in his case the senate and like you know, people are noticing them and they're hearing about each other. And honestly, uh, Gabby Giffords had a natural exuberance and charisma and an easiness with people that really was a gift. And, you know, then you add to the, that, as you say, coming from, from Arizona, uh, a red state, although like a blue pocket within the red state, uh, uh, Tucson, she did have a real ability to reach a, a, across the aisle. And honestly, she was relatively moderate. She had some progressive positions. She had some more moderate positions as you would in Arizona, including, to be frank, on guns where the NRA at the time had given her a C rating, very unusual. They're usually given everyone an A or an F. Like yeah. she was or like sort of they sort of couldn't decide quite what to make of her. She was a gun owner herself. She owned a, a Glock, the the same brand of gun used to to shoot her. And she was not and would argue she still is not against gun ownership per se. She wants to change laws to decrease gun violence. And here we are, you know, the, the the interesting thing is about it, it's also devastating to, her, to see her talk to Senator Chris Murphy returning. I mean, this was the U.S. senator is constantly brandishing the bloody shirts of the Sandy Hook massacre, which was, I believe, December of 2012. Right. And so many massacres have since transpired. I mean, you lose count. We now have Uvalde. These cities become synonymous with uh, gun massacres. Highland Park. You don't even, you know, Columbine is not known as a, as a town. It's right. known as a gun massacre in 1999. Right. right. Um, what What's striking to me in this duality? You talk about it, and uh, with with Gabby Giffords being a gun owner and getting a C rating is that NRA members themselves, gun owners themselves. I think there was this NPR poll this week that are in favor of right. You know, increasing the age of gun ownership, in, right. you know, increasing the uh, the incidence of background checks, the very right. things that she's pushing for that are constantly getting thwarted in the U.S. Senate. Right. I mean, it's really only like deep within the, you know, heart of um, the NRA, the gun industry, and sort of Washington politics, where the measures that uh, Gabby's been pushing for are controversial. You know, the thing that, you know, the law that just passed and was just signed in, into law the first time something that sort of does which anything dealing with guns. Which her husband, Senator Mark Kelly, co-sponsored. Which he, which he co-sponsored and was part of a bipartisan group of 20 senators that kind of worked together to figure out what can we, what compromise can we come up with that will do something and yet that will pass with bipartisan support, which ultimately they did. So that one increased background checks for people under 21. Like you can buy a gun at 18 and there are now universal background checks if you're under 21. So at least like, and that's no, not nothing because 18, 19, 20 year old um, men, I'm going to add, because that's uh, what, what, uh, how these things unfold. It's great that they're all going to have a get, need to get a background check regardless of whether they're going through a federally uh, licensed firearms dealer or just going to a gun show or at any old place where you might get a gun. That's, that's wonderful. What wasn't, what hasn't been gotten into law yet is universal background checks for everyone like you'd have you'd have to do a background check for all guns not just those bought by a licensed firearms dealer 
a notion that's actually broadly supported by the public, including Republicans, including gun owners. But it's like the, you know, there, there's a, there's a little bit of fear of that among lawmakers who worry about it hurting certain contributions from the gun, the gun side of things, you know, the people worrying about a slippery slope. I mean, certainly in your state of Virginia, which is actually my, my home state too, like, you know, people care about guns and, are concerned that the reforms that are are starting to move forward might somehow hurt legitimate non-criminal gun owners. So that's kind of the thing. But there, there's been a there's been a thought that there's no hope ever of any bipartisan legislation. So the fact that something happened over the past month is actually kind of meaningful, and I think you know might might be the beginning of some changes. Julie, I think a lot of people will remember when she came back to the. Uh, the floor of Capitol Hill in, was it 2012, I believe, yeah. and gave that, you know, she got the standing ovation and it was unbelievable to see that. And especially now when you compare it to the footage of her in the months following the shooting, that she could turn it around that quickly and walk in and be received. And yet she that culminated in her having to resign her seat. Was there no chance of her continuing to do this? Would it have been absolutely too grueling, too strenuous? Yeah, you know, I think her th- it wasn't even her own for the own personal impact on her that um made her want to step down and not serve out her full term. It was the thought that like she she understood very well that she was going to be spending the vast majority of her time on her own rehabilitation and that it wouldn't really have been fair. Like some of her own aides said that they were saying like I oh, just sit out your term like we'll say you're the congress member and like you, you know, you can like still take it easy. And she's like, you know, that's not right. If my name is on the desk, if we're saying, if we're saying I represent this district, I really want to be putting my whole time and energy into this work. <laughs> and honestly, that's not going to be feasible right now because I need to spend hours a day on rehabilitate it, uh, on my rehabilitation and also sleep. Like she needs, she needs more rest. Her brain needs more rest than most people's do. And that's part of her recovery process. And it's still true. Julie, tell me how she bankrupted your music budget in this. Because I was wondering what, you know, you got U2, which could not have been cheap. You got Tom Petty. You got AHA, because Gabby Giffords insists on crooning along to 80s music on her, uh, what is it, reclining bike. Yeah. So um, <laughs> so you have a budget when you go into into making a film like this, and that includes a budget for licensed music. Uh, and the the unfortunate side of things, you name some of the big ticket uh, items. Coldplay is in there uh, also, and uh, what else? Tom, Tom Petty and Doris Day singing "Kesarasara." <laughs> um, uh, John Denver, "Take Me Home, Country Take Roads." Take me home, Country Roads. Um, yeah. You know, it works in a sort of most favored nation way, is what they call it. So, like, what you pay the the amount that you pay the most expensive artist, like all the other artists require being paid the same amount. Like that's part of the deal that you're striking. People are willing to negotiate, but they don't want to get a worse deal than someone else. So once you've got one high ticket song, that just sort of boosts up the budget of everything. We had a certain budget for licensed music. We're following Gabby around and she's just singing constantly. And some of the scenes where she's singing are like incredible. You can't like when she's singing, you know, uh, take on me, I believe is the official. Oh my, name, yeah, the, you can't the official not, name of the you song. Can't, you is, cannot leave that on the cutting right. room floor. And but she, I imagine ri- you looking at Betsy and saying, "This is going to cost us twenty grand." Yeah, she's um, she's you know, she's riding around. She likes to bring like a trash picker when she's riding on her recumbent right. bike because the bike is low to the ground, so that allows her she can like she can do a little community service while she's out there, and she picks up trash. She has a little like a uh, plastic trash bag that's attached to her bike, and <laughs> she's riding along. She's singing along. She's humming. She's so happy, and then she's like. Ooh, trash! And she runs over and she picks up. She picks up the trash and she goes on. And it's like, okay, there's no way we're not using that scene. Um, I will admit, there was even a moment we're all when we filmed that scene, we had our our camera woman Diana Taylor was like facing out the back of a van, and Betsy and I were in the front of the van watching on monitors and actually watching things unfold. And she's singing, it's so great. And because of some of the concerns about the music and also concerns about editing the footage together, we actually went out and asked her, um, you know, during during a break in the filming, we're like, could you could we do a couple 
a couple, you know, stretches of road here where you just don't sing, where you're just riding your bike. You're like, so Gabby turned off the recorded uh, 80s music that she plays, uh, Sirius Radio's uh, 80s on 8, for those who know it. I'm a fan as well of that <laughs> of that channel. Always listen when I'm on a plane. And uh, she turns off that the recorded music and she pedals maybe like 10 or 12 rotations of her bicycle wheel. And then she just starts to sing again. Then she say, she was singing uh she was singing uh, every breath you take in fact she was singing the police oh, at that, that was mo- cost at, that, <laughs> at that moment so like she they're like and we and we just gave up like the, you cannot tell this woman to stop singing she is going to keep singing so um we would um we we did have to we we pride ourselves generally of k- keeping under budget in movies but we did go a bit over this one we had to go back to our partners at CNN Films and Time Studios and say like um, we're gonna need a little more money for all of the because even even if you're not playing the record even if you're not playing the recording like even if Gabby's just singing like you still you still have some licensing fees that you got to pay for that so. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Uh, you're listening to Julie Cohen alongside Betsy West. She directed the new documentary, Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down. Please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. You could subscribe at link fulldradio.com. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. And of course, you can DM me if you'd like to carry Full Disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we are talking to Julie Cohen. Uh, She is director of the new documentary, Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down. She co-directed it with her battery mate, Betsy West. You might remember them from the Oscar-nominated RBG, the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, There is some serious gallows humor here. The backstory is uh, things have so improved for her and her sense of humor has so restored Gabby Giffords that she admits to keeping a piece of her skull in the freezer. Yeah. So um, we have in the film a little house tour with Gabby and, you know, they show us some things. They got some, they got the nice painting on the wall of a ship that was named after Gabby, the USS Gabby Giffords, um, you know, some old family pictures and uh, a few, uh, some other memorabilia from the hospital. And then they open up the freezer and right in the main freezer cabin between the sliced mangoes and the frozen empanadas, uh, they like to say, is a Tupperware container that contains, kind of wrapped up in plastic, the chunk of Gabby's skull that was removed from her head uh, 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 on the very day, uh, I believe, that she was shot. You know, you might, I mean, I've heard of people, you've heard of people keeping like a wisdom tooth or something. But like, and they also have a plastic model of the skull that gives you a sense of the proportion of her skull that she lost that day. And that was later, uh, replaced with a prosthetic. It's an impress, it's, it's quite a discordant situation to be sitting there laughing and talking and singing with an obviously very much alive and very lively person and then understand how much of their skull is gone like you almost can't believe it and to keep the skull like once you once you know gabby giffords and mark kelly it kind of makes a little more sense that they're keeping that skull in the freezer they're like maybe a little proud of it like look at look at what we've come through I mean, she's rehearsing for her bat mitzvah, too. Yes. So uh, Gabby, actually, before she was shot, she, she is Jewish. Uh, some people, a lot, a lot of people we've learned didn't didn't know that about her. Um, uh, and before she was shot, she had never had a bat mitzvah as a kid. And before she was shot, she had been going to a temple. She had a, a close relationship with her rabbi there, Stephanie Aaron. And they had been talking about uh, mm. ha- having a bat mitzvah and just hadn't quite gotten around to it. Gabby was so busy with her, you know, congressional job and her campaigns. Um, and somewhere, you know, some period into her recovery, she just reapproached the rabbi and said that, like, you know, her faith is important to her and said she really wanted to have that bat mitzvah. So she and a couple friends um, decided that they would together study to do adult bat mitzvahs. Um, we filmed some of the rehearsal of that, which for anyone who's have their own bar or bat mitzvah, I think will be extremely relatable because, you know, 
the struggle for the, the way she's like she goes like <laughs> which yeah. is like kind of about how i do it so like you totally you totally can can sort of relate to that it's hard right. enough so with the, all the, of the your hard, brain, the, the, you know, the, think, the challenge yeah. of hebrew what's what's amazing and we didn't include in the film is she also takes spanish lessons gabby was a was a pretty good spanish speaker uh before she was shot, had actually studied for a year a Fulbright scholarship in Mexico and is proud of her Spanish language skills, which she also wanted to redevelop. Like she's a very ambitious person and that really has not been impacted. Like so many of the things not impacted by the shooting, I would say her her personality, her humor, her lovingness and her ambition are all very much still in evidence. You know, Julie, when she's doting on her husband, now U.S. Senator Mark Kelly, who was the first Democrat, after all, to win that seat in Arizona since 1962, when she's doting on him, giving his speech on the floor of the Senate, you know, pointy ears, bald, she's saying everything. And, and, and she, you know, you realize you're heavy hearted about it because that could have been her. That should have been her. It was probably destined to be her. But you also look at them together and, you know, this is jumping ahead a lot, but everybody's talking these days about a vacancy in the bullpen for nationally appealing Democratic candidates. And and you wonder if this couple's destined for the White House somehow. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know whether that's something they would want to take on. But um, but I but I agree with you. I mean, you know, there's just a lot of appeal I mean, he's an astronaut. I mean, he's an astronaut. He's an astronaut with a sense of humor. There's him flying around, you know, weightless, dressed as a gorilla, pranking his uh, fellow astronauts. Let me just let me slightly correct that story, because these things come up fairly often when you have a twin brother who's also an astronaut. That was actually Scott Kelly who was in the gorilla suit. All right. All right. Cut that. Cut that. No, 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 no. no, But you you can include it because it was Mark that sent it to him when Scott was the one who Uh was up in the space station for a whole year. And uh and Scott uh, 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 and Mark send him a gorilla suit, which he like jumps out. That's kind of freaky video, actually, where he kind of comes jumping out of it and scares some of his uh, fellow astronauts. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of science nerds, I hope that the senator would not object to me describing him that way. And um, military guys, because he's a former Navy pilot, uh, bomber pilot. Um, he has a kind of dry sense of humor and also a pranky kind of sense of humor. So, you know, things things can... I think because he was his 2020 reelection campaign, which we follow quite a bit in the film, um, was like not a full six year Senate term. He was taking over uh, John McCain's uh, seat. So that was just a two year term. He's up for reelection again. I would say of all of the tight races, and there are many like he seems pretty well positioned um, at at this point. I mean, think about that. That was John McCain's seat. Right. I mean, legendary John McCain. There's Mo Udall. There are a handful of people that are just legends in their position. And this is something that has now been inherited by uh, Mark Kelly. I want to geek out with you uh, in the few minutes we have left, Julie, about the business case for these things. Clearly, you build a lot of runway for yourself in the progression of your documentaries. You know, everything from the delicatessen in Manhattan to obviously RBG, which was a blockbuster a uh, doc that uh, Gabby Giffords herself was a fan of the doc uh, wore wore RBG socks. Yes, indeed. And she showed them to you on a Zoom call. How much did that open doors for you to kind of when you did find a topic to pounce on that there were underwriters out there that there was distribution and runway? Yeah, I mean, I would say the short answer to that is a lot. You know, people who are making decisions about spending their money on other people's creative work certainly look for past examples. That's the main thing they're looking for. Like, can these people make this movie? And I think the combination of our past success with RBG and our Julia Child documentary, Julia, um, and our Amazon Prime film, My Name is Polly Murray, if I might plug all of our work, you know, kind of helped to make CNN Films and, and Time Studios, who ended up being our partners on this movie, um, you know, think that we, we could do that. And then in, in combination, of course, with our subject herself, I mean, you know, we made the case, including, you know, with some with some video that like, this is an incredibly strong character, who's going to be able to carry a film. And the fact that communicating the main thing that one needs to do in a documentary, after all, is a struggle for Gabby could actually be a strength for us because showing our viewers how she does that is going to be part of our story. That was kind of our our pitch and um, they bought it. 
And that really was, you know, I say personally, as as difficult as it was to watch the first 30, 45 minutes, you know, through the shooting and everything, at the very end when she's riding through and picking up trash and singing 80s and is this kind of unstoppable force of nature, I don't want to sound corny. It's It's so inspiring. I've used the word reconstituting several times in this interview, but that's what I was left with. Yeah. Uh, feeling that if she could reclaim her brain, if the human brain, which has lost a big part of itself, can go back and find itself again like this, it's an incredibly inspiring story. Absolutely. I mean, she's just indomitable, um, is I think the word that uh, President Obama uses about her. And I, and I think that's just, this is just an indomitable person. There is nothing that can come up that she will allow to dominate her. She is going to dominate any situation and do it with just verve and joy and toughness and 80s music. <laughs> Am I allowed in closing to ask you about the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg? I'm sure people buttonhole you about this all the time. You are allowed to ask me, yes. I'm haunted by when I was watching your spectacular documentary, which I, I believe should have won the Oscar, but you were nominated and it's wonderful and it gets talked about by grandmothers and my daughter and my mother-in-law and everybody. My mom talks about it. I had this feeling in my stomach that, you know, the documentary was, was released during the Trump administration and Ruth Bader Ginsburg had survived all these cancers that could have knocked her out back in 2009, pancreatic cancer, uh, colorectal cancer, uh, things in remission, stents put in. Right. You, 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 you kind of knew that you wondered that if this was going to result in her dying on Donald Trump's watch and somebody opposite her being put into the Supreme Court. And fast forward from that, Roe v. Wade was just overturned. Yeah. What are you telling people? What are you feeling? I mean, some people pushed back and thought that in watching your documentary, it would have been sexist to suggest that an elderly person, forget, you know, an elderly yeah. woman should have resigned when there was a chance to to replace her with another left-leaning Supreme Court justice under the Obama administration. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not sure I would make that claim of, of sexism necessarily. Certainly, um, you know, having chastened by that whole experience, there were many calling for Stephen Breyer to step down um, o o over this past term, which in fact, he, he did. So I'm not I'm not sure you'd You'd say that. I think, um, I think you have, you have to keep in mind that it wouldn't have been as easy as some think for, at a certain point, for Justice Ginsburg to, to step down and replace. After all, look what happened with Merrick Garland. I mean, that was in, you know, uh, Justice Scalia died in February. But you uh, saw the Times piece. Didn't there was Obama no quietly nudge her over that lunch in 2013 or something? On, on uh, you know, I, I, just I, a... I think he well, well may have, but um, in, you know, there was a kind of a perfect storm of bad for, from her perspective and, and mine, just to be totally honest, things, things that happened that, um, Justice Ginsburg didn't anticipate. She, li like most of us, she did not anticipate that Donald Trump was going to become president. She thought Hillary was going to be the president. It wouldn't have been an issue. She also, I think, expected from her own experience of herself, and she was an, an unbelievable force. Um, she just did not expect to, to die on Donald Trump's, uh, you know, in his term. I, you know, she came so close to to getting through that. And then the, you know, the painful outcome is, is what it is. I can't, you know, all I can say is there was certainly a time in which she didn't think it was yet necessary to step down sort of early in the Obama years. And then there was every reason to expect that there would be a, a president who, you know, for whom replacing her wouldn't have caused this big swing. And um, once there was the situation with Trump staying in office, it was a, a matter of fighting hard to stay alive. And the sad, you know, the sad truth was uh, Justice Ginsburg's um, death in uh, September of 2020. You and, and Betsy, your co-director, must get accosted so much at cocktail parties when we go back to doing cocktail parties, right? Yeah. <laughs> Julie Cohen, uh, co-director of the new documentary, Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down, 
Full disclosure, I wholeheartedly recommend it. I watched it. It was riveting. I'm going to go back and watch it again. Can I um, can, can I tell people, Robin, how to find out there are tickets near do, them? And do. in fact, there are there are screen there are plenty of showings uh, this weekend, including Richmond and Charlottesville, and I'm going to be present at at some of them. So check that out. But if you go to Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down dot com, you will find uh, the theater near you, and you can go straight to getting your tickets to seeing this amazing if I do say so myself, movie. Julie Cohen, please come back. I certainly will. Full disclosure, stay with us. I was talking to Oscar-nominated documentary maker Julie Cohen on her latest Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down. I wanted to close out this episode with an excerpt from The Wayback Machine, some of my 2018 chat with Adnan Sarwar, a British Muslim ex-soldier who reflected on fighting in Iraq. My guest this week is Adnan Sarwar. He was a former British Muslim soldier who was shipped to Iraq 15 years ago as a specialist in landmine clearance. In his essay, he wrote, and I quote, I realized I felt freer in the army than I ever would in my parents' terraced house in the UK with an Asian cash and carry at one end and a mosque at the other. My comrades didn't judge me. They just wanted me to live my life. How are you, sir? I'm good. 15 years on and you you pen this essay. I want to know how, you know, the motivation to kind of finally do this, what you think about that invitation in hindsight seeing how how the the, the original plan of kind of an easy operation and an easy end game in Iraq mm. didn't pan out. Well, I mean, I was 24 years old when I invaded Iraq and I was co-located with the United States Marines and we, you know, at that age you absolutely know what you're doing. You you've got the arrogance of youth, I suppose. And then, you know, I'm 40 in uh, in a few months. And I've just been reflecting back on the kind of things that we did and the kind of things we were up to and where Iraq is right now. And I just recently went back and traveled the whole country from north to south. I did a road trip. And, and I just wanted to find out if there was anything there that uh, had had you know, been made positive because of our intervention. And there were some positive stories and there were some negative stories, but this is just kind of, you know, um, you know, hurtling towards middle age, looking back and saying, what was I part of? I have to ask, and I'm in no, really, it's a privileged position to ask because I didn't serve. I was there as a civilian in New York City. I did uh, live through 9-11 and, and mm. I saw what happened and the, the, the militaristic buildup here afterwards into the 2002 election and whatnot. But when you look back and uh, you see kind of how the uh, the surgery maybe was 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 done well, but the healing process and the stitching and everything afterwards yeah. and the reunification of the country was not. It was it was mishandled by Don Rumsfeld by the coalition troops. And I was I I, I want to ask someone this. Do you wonder if this <laughs> country was better off under Saddam Hussein? Was that just a too dangerous question that I asked? I don't think it's a dangerous question. I asked that question when I went to um, Iraq in February and March, and a lot of people said, which is very hard to hear, that the country was better off under Saddam because it was uh, it was under control, and they believed that there was no way ISIS could have formed in a country that was under Saddam's control because he would have just gotten rid of them. That said, there were there are a, a lot of Iraqis and a lot of Kuwaitis and a lot of Kurds who are very happy that we removed Saddam. They just want the country to be fixed, but it's 15 years on and it doesn't seem like we had a plan after the invasion. You have to remember, the Iraq war happened, it was like a sandwich war, it happened in between us going into Afghanistan and we've not left Afghanistan really yet. So right in the middle of it, we had this war in another country. And so I don't know about the preparation, I don't know about the, um, the consequences, it, it just seems like we weren't prepared for what happened afterwards. And wasn't that the lesson that the first Bush administration in the early 90s with Operation Desert Storm, I was always under the impression in college and whatnot that he was advised by his generals to uh, not potentially cheat with a, uh, you know, flirt with this possibility of a power vacuum. Iraq was so crazily put together mm. in this kind of the, the colonial ooze that it emerged out of was so yeah. bizarre that the only person who could possibly hope to keep the pr tribes together, albeit with such a brutal iron fist, was someone like Saddam Hussein. I mean, you've got it exactly right. It's a tribal country and there's so many factions and so many um, loyalties that it's it's a really, really complicated country. And to look at it as a simple country that you could take over, it's misguided because either side of the country, you've got Saudi Arabia influencing the country with the Sunni population. You've got Iran next to them, 
influencing the Shia population. And actually, funnily enough, the Shias in Iraq saw themselves as Arabs and not as Persians. It was only after this uh, this push that um, when the Sunnis took charge and they started having a go at the Shias, that the Shias then became aligned with the Shias in Iran. Very complicated. Now, where where do you stand in this in this axis? It says you grew up in a Muslim household in the UK, yes. a town in northwestern England. Your parents had come from Punjab in Pakistan in the 1970s. They ran a corner shop. Your manifest destiny was either to end up riding a, you know, driving a taxi or operating one of these these uh, dives on the corner or a store. And you wanted to, you know, you led a chaste and pious life. And at some point, how did that all, I, I want to get back in your head in the events yeah. of September 11th and how that changed your identity as a Muslim. I mean, it was one thing for you in the UK. It's another yeah. thing for us in Manhattan, but I, I think it assaulted all of Western civilization as a whole. No, it absolutely did. I mean, I have to be honest, the reason I joined the army was to escape and, you know, have an adventure. 9-11 happened just as I joined the military. And I remember I remember exactly the time it happened. We were in a signals wing, so it's just a little um, building with radios in there. And there was a guy who was uh, four ranks ahead of me, and he was listening to the radio, and we heard it over the radio, and he sat us all down, he said, this is going to be war, that America will not stand for this. And he'd been in the 1991 Gulf War. So he was absolutely determined that this was going to be a war that we were going to go to. And we ended up going. But for me, you know, I can't pretend to be some political geoscientist and all this kind of stuff. Right. You know, back then I was a 24-year-old kid looking for an adventure. And I really wanted to go to war. You really wanted to go to war chiefly because you were bored? Not because I was bored, but because I was looking for an escape. I was looking for some kind of uh, identity. And a lot of people do that. In the UK, you can see a lot of people from poor towns join the military. And I think you do it in the US too. I think people join the military to get a new future, get themselves a college degree, etc. But you are a very literate person. You're clearly well-read and well-written in this. I'm, I'm speaking to you uh, as someone yeah. who was wowed by the essay. And surely you studied some modicum of history, or surely you look back at it. I, I wonder if that at that point, I mean, at the yeah. 9-11 point and everything that happened, let's say, between 2001 and 2003, yeah. were, were, were people coming up to you, kind of traditional Anglican Brits and Scots and whatnot, and asking you as a Muslim to kind of stand up and denounce your people, like to be one of these people. I, I just remember having conversations with so many people in the United States that were put in that uncomfortable position. Like, why are you making me, uh, you know, underscore my, my bona fides as a, as a Muslim American, for example? Absolutely. No, I, there was a shift uh, in the way people saw you and the way people thought about you. Um, but education-wise, I screwed up my education and I'm, I'm self-educated. So, I, I, I mean, I literally was a doorman three years ago um, where I read a lot of books and then ended up at The, at the Economist. Um, but uh, yeah, at the time, yeah, there definitely was a shift in the way people saw Muslims and thought about Muslims and asked them in several types of ways, either by their behavior or actually physically asking them to show some kind of loyalty to the West. And, you know, you mentioned Full Metal Jacket in this, yeah. and that was one of the most impactful movies I saw in my adolescence. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't help but think back to that that, that initial scene where all of these, um, you know, young kids going into war, they're getting their heads shaved, and there's yes. that song, Hello yeah. Vietnam. And I'm wondering yeah. what your moment kind of was tantamount to that. And may I say, as an aside, it's very Kubrick-esque, this scene that you described coming into Kuwait where all of the fellow soldiers were asked to surrender their porno magazines. I yes. mean, I, that's yeah, such yeah. a detail that just blows my mind. And you kind of had to pry some from their cold, dead hands. Yeah, yeah. But take well, me back to that initial moment. Well, I mean, the war has been talked about and shown on TV and it just becomes this moment which people talk about in a very weird manner. I wanted to be very, very honest about what happened in that war. And those details are, are golden. You know, the fact that, you know, we were all told to uh, get rid of our porn because we were going to a Muslim country. Um, so, yeah, at, at the time, it was it was very surreal. Uh, it was like a film. And this is the weird thing for me was because I'd watched Full Metal Jack and I watched mainly American war films. When I was there in Kuwait and there was this massive expanse of land in front of me and you had tanks going across it and you had helicopters in the sky, it absolutely felt like a film. It didn't feel real for me at all until um, I, you know, I lost a friend of mine uh, about three weeks after we crossed the border. I unfortunately lost two friends in, in an ambush. But up until that moment, honestly, it was, it was the, the experience was so big, it was filling me and I, I couldn't grasp it. 
Were you were you uh, kind of trained or did you try to motivate and kind of reading up on Saddam's atrocities or some of the things his sons did? I want to because it's clear there's this this thing that you illustrate for us and kind of getting revved up and going there and the adrenaline mm. rush. And it's something that's decidedly something an early 20 something yeah. would feel. But you're uh, still not really privy to the horror of, of losing someone or seeing somebody tortured or mutilated yeah. that had to dawn on you subsequently. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when we got into uh, theatre, as it's called, we were given intelligence briefs. So the uh, intelligence people would say to us, this is what's happened. And, you know, like when we were going up into Basra, they talked to us about the Marsh Arabs and said that the marshes were drained by Saddam. And so we got, we got uh, you know, short history lessons at the start of the day. And we were kind of, you know, we knew where we were. We knew we were in Iraq and we knew what country surrounded it. But that was... You know, I wasn't I wasn't a big reader at the time, and I have to, that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be very honest about who I was at the time. I don't want to pretend I was this learned person who, who went there. And there was a lot of people like that around me. We were just there doing a job we were told to do. And I'm quoting you again in your essay. It said, over the course of five or six weeks, we inched towards the Iraqi borders. We got closer. The bombs began to fall. We presumed that Saddam had chemical weapons, so we spent all day and all night in boots and thick charcoal-lined camouflage suits that would neutralize nerve agents. We got so used to these frequent attacks that at night, when the sirens woke us, we'd groggily pull on our gas masks and fall asleep again. Yeah. It's hard to picture that. A person who has used uh, chemical weapons before against yeah. the Kurds in the late 80s. And, and, and it's something that if it, you, it would stand to reason that if he has nothing to lose, he wants to go out like bang, bang. Yeah. Well, you know, when we were in Kuwait, we were digging into the uh, digging into the desert. We were literally digging trenches and staying in trenches. And it was me and the U.S. Marines. And we were kept pushing forward. And we kept going through these suspected chemical attacks as people would shout, gas, 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 we'd put our gas masks on and just carry on whatever we were doing. So if we were driving, we'd be driving gas masks. If we were digging trenches, we'd be doing that. If we were sleeping, we'd sleep in those. But it just happened so many times that, you know, soldiers get used to things. And we were, you know, we were talking about being bored of his, his chemical attacks. And, you know, but he was bombing us when we were coming up. But they weren't, they weren't chemical weapons, thankfully. You were listening to some of my 2018 interview with Abnan Sarwar, a British Muslim ex-soldier who reflected on his time fighting in Iraq. You can listen to the entire episode. It's called Saddam Hussein, My Role in His Downfall, wherever you get your pods. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and multimedia producer Evan Hunter. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Follow along on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, WERA in Arlington, WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and out west on KPPQ in Ventura. Holler if you'd like us on your air. And you can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Thank you.